Good morning. This is Jay Westerveld with my weekly show here on WTBQ, Tales and Trails. Our show is a kind of a fun mosh, I think, of history, uh, both natural and cultural history, uh, global events, global issues. Sometimes we steer far away from politics, even right now, the day before Election Day here in the States. And uh, instead of sort of droning on about my own experiences too much or you know just citing academic sources etc i like to speak with people i like conversations myself um i like things that sort of feel like you know you're sitting in a pub just having a conversation and for that reason i, I try to choose guests who are engaging speakers and interesting people when it comes to history all too often historical societies perhaps um and and, and i founded one in 2007 here in New York State, uh, historical texts, etc., become all too academic and throw back way too far back into history, sometimes serving as a conduit for people to sort of have a, a sort of expertise about an, a region or a culture that they don't even know firsthand. And I, I'm an experientialist. I like things that are firsthand experience. And for that reason, Yes, I, I do enjoy studying history deeply, in fact, uh, especially our regional history here in the state of New York and U.S. history. But also, I really like to speak with people who are part of contemporary history, uh, going back however far that may be. So today's guest is my very, very dear friend, Chris Bell, who is from Tuxedo Park, New York. This is kind of interesting that Tuxedo Park, well, for one thing, the uh, the garment, the tuxedo, uh, is named for a garment um, that was popularized at Tuxedo Park. Uh, originally, I believe it was the Prince of Wales had uh, introduced it to a fella um, in England who brought it over here. And it's a very wealthy community, um, and it's it's been a, a, a literal enclave, a gated community for a really long time, just a little over a half hour north of Manhattan on the Harriman line and, uh, you know, train station and all, and just a really interesting place, sort of founded in colonial times because of the iron deposits. Uh, Lord Sterling and others uh, took a great interest in it, and there were great iron furnaces, etc. And then right right into the, the 1800s, it became Tuxedo Park, which was sort of a, a hunting and fishing cottage area uh, set up by Pierre Lorillard. And... Um, originally set up by Pierre Lorillard uh, II and then Pierre Lorillard IV by 1885, made it a private hunting and fishing reserve. That feeling has carried on right into the present. It, in the 20s, it waned a little, um, and it, it started to come back thanks in part its renaissance in the 60s, more even the 70s and 80s, due to my friend Chris, his dad, uh, Fritz Bell, uh, who's a fascinating man and Chris uh, even more so in my experience and uh, hopefully today Chris can talk with us a little about that having grown up in the park uh, are you here Chris yeah I am how are you Jay good how, where are you calling from I am calling from uh, sunny steamboat springs Colorado the boat the boat yeah yeah uh, I, I will say I am there are moments uh, you know uh, that I am missing my Hudson Valley uh, heritage and home. Um, you know, it's a really special place, but, uh, you know, it was time for a change in the last year or so. And, um, 
you know, we're very happy we made this move, but uh, I'm still fortunate to be able to go back and visit family and friends and, you know, Warwick and Tuxedo and Chester. And, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful spot. And visit this guy. For sure. Well, tell me about growing up there and uh, what what was it that originally drew your dad, uh, Fritz, to uh, Tuxedo Park, yeah, Chris? J- you know, Jay, your uh, you're, you're, you're lead up history there uh, is spot on accurate. And, but I think that um, just to help a little bit, the tuxedo story is kind of funny in that uh, that when the hunting and fishing club, and it was also an equestrian club too. A lot of people don't realize there was actually a horse race track. Uh, right. And Jay, I think you and I have actually walked around that old track. Yes, we have. Uh, where I, I used to ride dirt bikes when I was a kid because the, the equestrian stuff all went away and the na- names of the roads down there were like Westlake Stable Road and Eastlake Stable Road. And they were smaller college cottages that were actually stables that have now been turned into homes. But um, really, basically, the Pierre Lorillard showed up at the Autumn Ball at the Tuxedo Club and had somebody cut the tails off of his formal suit. And it made all the fancy New York City papers. I've read this, made, yeah. Yeah, and they named it the Tuxedo because he was actually just being a rebel. Uh, you know, <laughs> sort of like Pee Wee Herman, I'm a rebel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where's my bike? Right, right. right. So, <laughs> So, but anyway, uh, the deal is, is that the interesting thing about Tuxedo is when they did it, the original cottages were really hunting and fishing cottages. And that was kind of a, a swamp that the Continental Road that George Washington built went up through Tuxedo Park on its way up. Well, it went a little bit west, kind of toward Chester, I believe. And then it made its way over toward New Windsor or Newburgh and that kind of West Pointy area. Sure. But... What uh, was really interesting is when they drained the lakes a couple times to fix the dams. I mean, the the lakes were basically man-made. They're they're step-down dams. So it was really one of the first manufactured, basically manufactured, gated communities in the United States, I believe. Yeah, I believe you're right, Chris. And that that alone, you know, is kind of a kind of a title. And I I have read exactly that in some pretty credible uh, texts. Yeah, and there was a lot, there's so much lore and, and stuff that I'm not sure I have completely accurate, but uh, the, the couple of interesting points I know is, uh, I think it was Avril Harriman, um, they wouldn't let him into the club, and he got really uh, hurt by it. And I don't know if he had upset some of the good old boy club that was, you know, trying to be Tuxedo Park, but he went and built that uh, that big house up there on that hill above what is now Woodbury Commons. Absolutely. So he, could, he could look down on Tuxedo. W- would that be uh, Arden House, Chris? Yes, Arden House, I believe so, and I think you and I may have walked around up there. I think we have, years. but uh, I, I, I'm not I'm not owning up to anything. I, I, I'm, I don't remember how long ago it was. No, for sure, we, we have, and that's a, a beautiful area, and I, I think you sort of had the last laugh, you know, Billy. I can imagine the, the denizens of TP back in the day going, good God, what, what is Avril doing on that ridge top, man? <laughs> Just plugging away. <laughs> you know, that's great. The place but, is beautiful. 
Yeah, and what I think one of the things that I, I did want to share with you and your listeners, and I'm, maybe you and I have discussed this, but for me, I was an art history major in school, and there was a big chapter on architecture and American architecture, particularly for me. And the interesting thing was is that around 1890, and I could be wrong on the dates, funny things happened, like the floodgates of immigrants coming into this country through Ellis Island w- was overwhelming, and a good portion of them were Italian craftsmen. Sure. They couldn't speak a lot of English, and they, they came over here with, you know, a, a bag in their hand, and somebody assigned them a name. Well, Lorillard and his pals, they had just put the railroad in up through the Ramapo Mountains, probably upsetting the heck out of the Lenape or, or the the native people sure, sure. still there. Lenape, yeah. Lenape, sure. Uh, from whom the, yeah. the name Tuxedo is uh, actually derived. Yeah, Duck yeah. Cedar or, or Tuxedo, sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, and you know, of course, they mispronounced it. But Harriman, or uh, not Harriman, um, the original guys that were trying to do Tuxedo Park got very lucky in that these craftsmen were coming from Poland, uh, Italy, and they didn't really have anything. So right. if you look at the East Village in, in Tuxedo, on the other side of the throughway, you'll notice a Order Sons of Italy sign painted on a, you know, a clubhouse or something. Sure. That, that village, the East Village of Tuxedo, and the, the village of Tuxedo was primarily Italian and uh, Polish people that uh, and descendants of it, and these guys said, "Well, listen, you come. You, I, we need two hundred of you guys. You come up here, you build me a house, and uh, I'll uh, I'll build you. I'll let you build a house, and you've got a place to live and a job for the next four years." That's radical. And, uh, and they brought yeah, that real old world craftsmanship with them, which is not something you can really learn overnight. You know, when it goes back generation upon generation in Italy. Exactly. And, and, you know, the neat thing was, is it all converged with the fact that, you know, there was no income tax at, at that time around, you know, 1880 through, well, until World War One, I, I guess. So, you know, people that had been a little bit established in America, if they were doing okay, they were really doing okay. And that's how right. and it kind of culminated with the Industrial Revolution. And Americans, for the first time, were really able to travel to Italy, uh, Normandy. France and you know all of these places. So well, a lot of them weren't traveling to Normandy because they wanted to, because it was their first choice. But uh, right. and God bless those. But yeah, for sure, no these these actually became places that were very interesting tourist sites as well in a big way. Yeah, and so what happened is if you look at the original architecture in Tuxedo uh, was really stick frame. I, I don't think we could call it arts and crafts, but it was kind of what we would still consider, you know, American architecture, the original hey, Chris, cottages. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to butt in, but we, we just have to stop for a sec, and we'll be right back after we just hear from some of the folks who make this possible. is a butcher with old-time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old-world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT. 
or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. Mike Martucci is one of us. Raised in Orange County, Mike and his wife Erin are raising their three young children right here in a family neighborhood. Ride with Mike on the road to recovery from this pandemic and on his mission to fix the very dangerous bail reform law. Public safety is the number one issue on Mike's mind and on the minds of all of us, our families and friends, as are lower taxes, good jobs, and great schools. Tomorrow's election day. Make your vote count. Vote Mike Martucci for state senate. Paid for by friends of Mike Martucci. Tune into the nonprofit notebook, your resource for and about people helping people. Learn about all the events and services available for you, friends, or family. Open your nonprofit notebook Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Radio worth listening to. Hi, this is Wild Baby Love. Start your Sunday with me at 6 a.m. and Gospel Tracks. I'll give you the phone number to the faith phone line and the address to the website. All that and much, much more right here on Gospel Tracks with yours truly, Wild. Baby love. We're back with Tales and Trails. I'm Jay Westerveld, your host of our relatively new show. And my guest today is the fascinating raconteur, Chris Bell, my dear old friend, uh, a.k.a. Beldar. Uh, Chris, you still there with us? Yeah, I am. Right on. So you were talking about the sort of stick homes to a degree that they started out with there in Tuxedo Park before, I guess, getting to the really spacious stuff. Yeah, and they were a little earlier, but it was probably, I would imagine, a very magic time in that people could travel, you know, by by sea and, and around the world, and wealthy Americans were able to do that. So they would pick up these architectural styles and say, hey, I want one of those. Sure. And they'd come to Tuxedo, and there were 400 Italian and Polish skilled guys that would build them these lovely places. So you'd have, um, like, uh, a Tudor next to a Mediterranean-style house. So right. you got all, right. all of these great architectural styles in this one little gated community that was a park that was actually um, the, the landscaping stuff was done by Olmsted, who right. actually uh, did Central, Central park. park. Sure. Right. And, you know, it's interestingly, um, Bruce Price, who was a, a very well-known architect there, he did the clubhouse. And you and I certainly remember the clubhouse really well. What's interesting is that uh, his daughter, was Emily Post, who wrote the Blue Book of Etiquette, of course, and she based it you on... Got it. Yep, based it on the club, uh, which is really something. You know, my association with the club was through the director at the time, through Timmy and all, uh, Jay Foss, which was right. made for really fun times and a really cool insight uh, to all of that. Now, at one of the buildings, is it... Uh, the school, TPS, or it, it was reimagined in one of the two homes in which you grew up there? Or um, am I mistaken? I mean, I know Shastalu, of course. Uh, so, so TPS was interesting. Tuxedo Park School was started in 1900. And what happened in Tuxedo was the Depression hit. And um, a lot of people burned a lot of houses down. If you walk yes. through there, you find a lot of foundations. It just put a lot of people out of business. And then, you know, we got around to World War One, and they instituted the income tax, and it, it really did change America forever. And, you know, not to be political, but it may be one of the reasons we are perpetually at war in this country. Of course. Uh, 
it was supposed to be a temporary uh, war effort uh, uh, stamp, but it uh, clearly it's stuck. But um, the interesting thing is, is, so then that was kind of the end of Tuxedo at of its heyday. Uh, and then so it really the place kind of went, for lack of better words, dormant right. until like, the mid-60s when a bunch of folks like uh, my mother and father. And, um, you know, there were some of the original descendants of the old guard that had hung on for dear life, like living in servants' corners and, and stuff. Right. But what basically, and, you know, the economy was kind of crummy in the 70s. And, you know, my, my parents were kicking around, and my mom was a school teacher in New York City, and my father was I don't know, trying to do what he was doing. And um, they attended a party, and they were like, oh, geez, you need to move to, you know, Durian, Connecticut. And, and they looked, and they just couldn't afford any of these places, and they sure. weren't crazy about Saddle River. And, you know, Warwick was still pretty farmy and still pretty far out there, so it, it, and, it didn't really work. And, Chris, I, excuse me for interrupting, but it's what I do best. <laughs> both, <laughs> both uh, it, you know, your mom, Polly, rest in peace, and she is missed, and, and certainly Fritz, neither were social climbers in any way at all. I mean, these were pretty down-to-earth people who were just looking for uh, better vistas for their family, it would seem. I would agree with that, and I think a lot of the people that moved into Tuxedo at that same time, in about 1968, were kind of after the same thing, you know. They, they they came into Tuxedo and they walked into this empty, you know, 10,000 square foot house. Now, granted, it was probably a $50,000 item in 1968, which is a heck of a lot of money when you consider, yes. you know, your average American home was probably, <clears throat> I'm making this up, but, you know, $12,000. Less, actually, right? yeah, actually, actually considerably less, sure. So that, yeah. no, that's a good point. But, you know, I think there's a, you know, this sort of um, misinterpretation of, of the, the ambient culture there that these were social climbers or, you know, real old-time blue bloods who went in and sort of, you know, refan the, the embers that were there. And that's not at all the case across You're the correct. board, you know, and people You're have correct. to realize that, that they were visionaries like Fritz and, and you know, the gang. Yeah. So the school thing was there were two schools. I, I believe that in the wake of the Depression and, and World War One, and then, of course, followed by World War Two, so many of these big, beautiful, uh, for lack of better words, mansions became empty. And there was a Catholic girls school that uh, acquired, I think, three or four of them over off East Lake Road uh, and Crow's Nest Road, you know, on that sort of south side of the yep. lake there. And... Um, they were there, and I don't know how long they were there, but I believe they were called Mount St. Mary's, and it was a Catholic girls' school, um, and they just got lucky in acquiring these. And I think they built a, a gymnasium or something, and this probably happened in the 50s, I would say. Sure. Uh, and it existed until, uh, I, I want to say about 1974, my father had bought a, a Mediterranean-style house on East Lake Road. Uh, I think my mother was kind of at the edge of her seat going, uh, <laughs> you know, we can't heat this house. Uh, but it, it are you a, kidding me? <laughs> are you kidding me? Oh. What are we doing? And, but what, and where you and I kind of converged was in about 1974, um, this Mount St. Mary, uh, financially, they were just really sucking wind. And Absolutely. So, yeah, so they decided to put... Uh, I, I think it was three or four of the larger houses in Tuxedo Park that they had acquired on the market. 
and my and it, there was rumor that a company called Christian Herald was going to buy them and turn them into office suites. Right. Well, my father just bought a house surrounded by these guys, and he's like, "Okay, uh, I, I'm going to have to throw you know an end zone ball here." <laughs> and, uh, and he ended up buying two of them from Mount St. Mary's. I, I'm sorry, and it, one of them came with a carriage house where I used to keep my cars and. Uh, throw frisbees and you know sure. be, be a twenty year old, but um, he ended up buying uh, a house called. They, a lot of these houses had names. Uh, Shastalu was one of them. Oh, where, Shastalu was uh, fascinating. Yeah, I think where you and I actually kind of crossed paths once or twice when we were really young. Once or twice. Um, yeah, and my father immediately turned around and sold it to your friend uh, Ted Alleman, I think was his name. Ted Alleman, uh, sure. In fact, his wife uh, ran the Tuxedo Park, uh, not the Conservancy, but something along those lines. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so he bought that house from my father, and then there was another one called Marion Hall, mm-hmm. which was across the street from our house, which he bought, and I think he sat on it for a year, and I think my poor mother was going nuts. I mean, my sister and I were riding bicycles around in ballrooms and, and empty court tennis courts. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Frozen, like, you know, the, the two yeah. girls playing in the... So wh- how did it morph into becoming Tuxedo Park School? I believe Fritz really kind of made that happen. Well, that was a little bit of a separate thing. Now, the Tuxedo Park School was started in 1900, and I did a little bit more looking this morning. And basically, like the Tuxedo Club in the you know late 60s, early 70s, it was all but defunct. Right. And um, you know, basically, my father got involved with both the club and the school. And in fact, I think one of the funnier stories is well, by the way, him buying those three houses out from uh, Christian Herald right. basically allowed the gates. I think he actually single-handedly gave Tuxedo Park another 50 years of life just by that move alone. Absolutely because, he did. Abs- I, yeah. that's, there is no arguing that for sure. He He's really responsible for the later 20th and certainly 21st uh, renaissance of, of the yeah. uh, the place. So, so with the school, I'm sorry, I don't mean to keep going off track myself. He... he hey. Yeah, the school was interesting in that, uh, you know, they were always looking for volunteers. You know, it's a private school, and, you know, those guys always have battles. And, of course, there's a great public school, you know, down in the, in the village of Tuxedo. In fact, I think one of the better public schools actually in Orange County. To uh, this day, primarily, yeah. Yeah, primarily because I think it was very small. Yep. Um, and, and I think that was its benefit. But um, so basically what happened was my father became the head of the – board of trustees or something and you know he was an engineer and now this guy Blair was uh, I believe a railroad guy and he had built a house called Blairheim up on the top of the hill and a guy called Hans Christian Sani when Tuxedo Park School didn't really have a home I'm, I'm going back now sure. to, the, to the 20s or 30s or something but uh, Christian Sani was the descendant of a, a, an original Sani guy and he acquired a bunch of property in Tuxedo, and he actually gave Blair's house uh, to the school. Uh, but Blair was so afraid of fire that that place is so overbuilt, Jay. Uh, you can fly a seven forty seven to, and it's not going to even budge. Sure, sure. No, and that you know that's the case with a, a few of the structures there. But but yeah, I've I've heard exactly that. Not just from you, by the way. Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, and by the way, that school property now, which is where Blairheim is, is I think home to the largest uh, eastern rattlesnake dead in, in the country. <laughs> it may just be, yeah, the timber rattlers there. It's you know it's pretty well known for it. I actually did a couple surveys there for. Um, TLC, Tuxedo Land Conservancy, and I was kind of stunned. Uh, you remember Sarge, of course, uh, over yeah, at Lemsip yeah. Housing, and he, yeah, he, he the number of uh, timber rattlers he found there and just the, the population and density of them was kind of shocking, you know, and, and sort of yeah. by default, because of this gated community, they were sort of well protected, which is, you know, an interesting side effect. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, so anyway, they went on with the school, and my mother became very involved. And, you know, they're always looking for money and for help. And, you know, Tuxedo really did continue to struggle until, I'd say, about the 80s. And, you know, it was a lot of houses were in disrepair, and there were people's dogs running all over the place. And, you know, we as kids got away with murder in this weird, overgrown paradise. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Uh, and it was a really neat community where, you know, you didn't have to worry about your children and, you know, it's, you know, worst case someone would get bitten by a snake, uh, or sure. you'd find a bear, you'd find a bear in your living room. But, you know, other than that, it was a really interesting, but weird kind of thing. But moving forward to, to bring the Renaissance, your Renaissance thought forward a little bit more in about 1980 or so, uh, some younger, the next generation, I guess you'd call it, below my father, uh, started kind of moving in, and they were really making some money. And they really started fixing these things up, and they raised a lot of money for the school and uh, the club, and, uh, you know, they created, they started doing balls again. I don't think they ever did the autumn ball, which is where the tuxedo was oh, invented. Of course. But, yeah, um, but, so I think bringing it forward, and a lot of people, oh, there used to be a hospital downtown. And, you know, my mother was very involved in that. Now I think it's a, you know, uh, elderly home yes. for people. But, um, yeah, and so I think that now basically what happened through the maybe 2000s is, you know, and also people could also acquire credit after about the mid 70s and so, that changed it, everything really for so many yeah. people you know what it, it's interesting on the greater scale you're talking about the depression um and then you're you're talking about income tax the introduction of income tax uh, right you know right around the time of world war one and now really the the widespread acquisition of credit or availability when we chris when we come back i i want to talk a little more about that Sam's Meat has been supplying restaurants and shops with the highest quality local and sustainably sourced prime and choice wholesale meat, steaks, poultry, seafood, and much more for over 20 years. Whether you're a small family butcher shop or a busy steakhouse, expect A1 service and the finest products available. Call Sam's at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off Route 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. This is Zach Kruk. If you want to cut through fake news and party spin, then join me Tuesday mornings at 10 o'clock and Friday mornings after the morning show. We'll talk current events, big issues, politics, and a little sports too. So tune in and call in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. and Friday after the morning show. 
Hi, this is Alan Fernandez. Join me at the Jazz Getaway with Miles Davis, John Coltrane, and Duke Ellington and more every Sunday at 7 p.m. WTBQ A wind advisory for today, partly to mostly sunny, windy, and cold. A flurry possible this morning. Highs in the mid-30s. The winds could gust to 40 or 45 miles per hour. So morning cloudiness tomorrow, otherwise partly sunny with a high into the mid-40s. Gusty breeze early. Tomorrow night, mainly clear and cold, down to the upper 20s to around 30. And a Wednesday, sunshine and becoming milder. Highs in the mid to the upper 50s. From the WTBQ Weather Center, I'm WeatherWorks' Tony Salimo. This is Jay Westerveld. We're back with Tales and Trails, my weekly show about local culture, global culture, natural history, and cultural history. Today we're talking about sort of the renaissance of Tuxedo Park, New York, a gated enclave just a little over a half hour from New York City. And my guest today is Chris Bell, my very dear friend, um, speaking to him from uh, Steamboat, Colorado. And... uh, we're talking about his experiences growing up there and, and his family's contribution to bringing about this renaissance. Chris, do you, do you have any funny stories from your childhood, you know, riding bicycles around, uh, you know, undoubtedly uh, orange peelers and lemon crate uh, Schwins <laughs> in those buildings or a, a, any well, nutty stuff? Well, you know, the funny thing is, is, you know, uh, I always like to joke that I was like the poorest rich kid in town. <laughs> and uh, so... I actually did not have an orange crate or a uh, chopper, uh, but my friends certainly did. But sure. I uh, actually had a uh, green Schwinn girls' bike with a white basket with daisies on it that was acquired at the St. Mary's Church Bazaar. Uh, by Chris, my there's, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, other than kids like riding by on the school bus and throwing their lunch at me, but. Uh, <laughs> I do have a funny story that my father probably wouldn't want me to tell, but I yeah, think because riding, riding riding a green girl's Schwinn with a basket and having lunch thrown at you from the school bus—that's just not funny. <laughs> no, it's not funny. But but uh, I do have a funny story that my father uh, said uh, that he actually did. You know, when he became head of the board of the club, and you know, he was the head of the board of the school, so he was kind of the guy in town. And and the first story I'll tell you about the club is. I, I believe it went like this. The club was completely out of money, and they were getting ready to shut their doors. Well, my father had decided to have an anniversary party for my mother at the ballroom at the club and invite all their local friends. Now, by the way, just so you know, uh, the young people that moved into Tuxedo in the 60s were moving into empty mansions. Right. Most of them didn't have furniture, and they were young. I mean, I don't think my parents were more than, you know, 30 years old. And so a lot of their friends from New York City and Connecticut and stuff, uh, and I think even Ohio, followed them to Tuxedo because they saw these white elephants as such a great value, even if you couldn't heat them. But, right. Uh, so my father actually, I, I believe, loaned the club uh, a little bit of money to keep their doors open so he could throw his party. Sure. <laughs> That's a good idea. That'd be a crazy yeah. party. Uh, apparently it was. I think a guy called Coe rode a horse right through the ballroom with a machine gun or something. <laughs> I mean, it was, was he fun. firing or was it just, was it in a scabbard or... Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I, as a young kid, I would wake up in the middle of the night and there'd be a hundred people in the ballroom in our house and there was crazy stuff going on. (laughs) (laughs) That had to be a lot of fun, especially Shastaloo. There had to be wild times there. 
Absolutely. That was a really big house, but it was laid out in a really funny way, and my mother really didn't like it. And they had added a court tennis court to it at one point, which was the original form of uh, indoor tennis, believe it or not. And they called it the Wait, sport Chris, of I'm, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. An indoor tennis court? Yes. But yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, We've run out of time. <laughs> <laughs> so go on. Yep, the indoor tennis court. <laughs> Yeah, but no, they, uh, you know, court tennis was uh, an English game that was brought to the United States by, you know, kind of the original people. And uh, it's called court tennis. And the Tuxedo Club, I think, is one of six uh, court tennis courts in the country. I, I could be wrong about that, but I think there's one in Philadelphia. And, well, I'm not sure where else, but. Sure, um, like original, yeah, original court tennis, which is not the same as just in a, you know, a spa putting indoor tennis courts. There's a actually a radical difference. That's cool. Correct. Yeah. But um, so the funny story was, I don't know what year I'm going to say. It was probably around 1974. Uh, my parents were at a party and my father was the head of the board of the, of the club. Well, my father and a friend of his decided it was a good idea to go up to this guy's Coe's house who had a bunch of horses and grab a horse and walk it down to the club and march go-go the, the horse into the court tennis court and leave him there. Well, yeah, whenever well, whenever you encounter a horse whose name is Gogo, that's the yeah. animal you want to put inside somebody's tennis court. You know, <laughs> that's the one. <laughs> so apparently all the alarm bells sounded the next morning. Now, what my father had learned growing up in Ohio around animals, kind of basically on a farm, was is that getting a horse into a dark corridor, the only way to do it is to turn on a light in front of him, and then when he passes the light, turn off the light behind him, and he won't retreat. So getting into a court tennis court, you have to go through these tunnels called <laughs> D-Dam. Oh, so he, no. <laughs> he gets Gogo. Poor old Gogo is now residing in the court tennis court, and the, you know, the tennis pro comes in the next morning to find... <laughs> piles of manure and are really ticked off go-go you can say and, trail apples i think standards and practices allows trail apples yeah. and uh i guess so they called an emergency meeting and oh yeah we've got to find the culprit well my father was put in charge of finding the culprit and in fact <laughs> he was the culprit yeah hiding the mouse uh hiring the mouse to guard the cheese so what exactly. what happened how did, did he just you know hand them a mirror or what did he do no i think he just uh he just kind of went uh james bond on it and yeah. just kind of kept his mouth shut and sweated a little bit and you know maybe went down and helped the tennis pro drag gogo out of the and then he probably had to call that guy co and apologize for stealing his horse that's great so how did now getting back to the school again so after the purchase and, you know, your dad get it, getting on the, you know, running the board of trustees, how did they then generate funding and get interest back into that, you know, once uh, decayed school that was now coming back into its own and as certainly to this day and age uh, become quite a, a power? Yeah, I think what happened really was things were getting better leading up into the 80s. But in the 70s, most of the students there were tuxedo park residents i mean there were a few children from um you know the village, like outside the gate um and you know maybe one or two kids from monroe and I, I think the new jersey bus was actually a brown station wagon that said taxi on the door and i think gotcha. there were you know three students from bergen county or something when i was there but my mother uh developed something called the dream auction where you know uh parents would put up 
you know, if they had a second house somewhere or something fun to do, they would put it up and people would bid on whatever that activity or item was, whether it was a, a painting or we'll host a dinner for you and your family or whatever, and people would bid on it. And she started that, I think, in the 60s. And I think she had done one for the hospital, and they were very successful, and I, they, they go on to this day. Um, wow. But I think there were a lot of, a lot of efforts from, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the wives and, in, that lived in Tuxedo and the church, you know, the same kind of thing. They'd run these benefits, and the local community would support it. Uh, the club was different because they were always getting a consistent, uh, you know, membership fee. Um, so it, I think it just kind of perpetuated itself. And then, you know, a little bit later on, the school got very good and creative because now some of these tuxedo homes were becoming second homes for New York City residents. And um, so they weren't really full-time, and they were maybe sending their children to school in New York City. Right. So we started getting a lot more uh, Bergen County residents moving in full-time. And then they would tell their friends from Franklin Lakes or Saddle River or Ridgewood that, hey, this is a really special place. And ultimately, someone would join the club to be a golf member, or they like to play tennis or something. Or they and like to ride they'd... horses in the indoor tennis court. <laughs> 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 but, uh, yeah, and so I think it just kind of self-perpetuated, but really what's helped the school really survive is it's reaching out to the community. In fact, even when uh, the greater Orange County community, in fact, even I think by the time I left there in 1977 or 8 or whatever, maybe it was 79, I don't remember now, but um, I think. I mean, at least the Little Tuxedo Park School, we did have a Warwick bus that did have about six students on it. Cool. So they were really reaching out to Warwick and Goshen and Chester and Monroe, um, and people were valuing that education. And then something else came along, which is the, the scope of private education has changed in my lifetime. And they were making, uh, you know, investing money in endowments that could help with financial aid. So if they had to charge $10,000 a year for kids, they had a fund there where if someone could qualify and they had a, a smart child, uh, the school would be able to help them to a certain degree uh, send their kid for that experience. That's you know? wonderful. And that, that really can be a game changer on numerous fields, you know, in education. Oh, yeah, and it know. also... Yeah, and it also really does help the community, and what it does is it keeps the student body a little bit diverse in, in a really positive way, and uh, it also brings people into Tuxedo Park that ordinarily w probably wouldn't experience it or feel that they couldn't experience it. Right, right, and, and to that rather unique education there, because that that's always been something that I've understood was uh, pretty incredible about that school was actually the faculty. Yes, and, I, and, you know, part of that, though, too, was a lot of them are young and energetic. And my father, actually, one of the things he did to attract uh, young people is the school couldn't uh, pay very good salaries back in the 70s and early 80s or late 60s through the early 80s. Sure. And so it wasn't really a living salary for, you know, a, a kid that just graduated from school and wants to be, you know, an ecology teacher or an English teacher or something. So there were still these empty carriage houses and stuff. So my father with the school kind of acquired a couple of, of these sort of overgrown places and said, okay, well, we'll give you free housing and I'll make an, a deal with the club that if you work for the school, you're a member of the club. Oh, that's and wonderful. So, yeah, so you, they were able to attract 
some really talented people. You know, unfortunately, Tuxedo is a little isolated, and if you're 25, you probably would rather live in Weehawken. Sure, but, sure. <laughs> Especially at that time. Well, you know what? Maybe more in the later 80s. But at that time, you know, it probably offered some nice opportunities. And for a lot of people, if the stipend was there where they could, you know, get by a mac and cheese, at least, I mean, it had to work out well, I would think. That's yes. that's a nice, a nice approach. And I'm sure it was very attractive to many people. I know that, you know, if I were around at that time, I, I'd... That's something I'd take advantage of just for the nature and all. So what coming into the 21st century uh, with Tuxedo Park at large and the school, what what uh, have you seen? I mean, I know you haven't been in there uh, yourself as much, but I think you've still had a close association with the school. Uh, up until well, yes, I did. In, in fact, my fiance or girlfriend of five years had worked at the school for about uh, 12 or 15 years, and she actually had uh, housing that my father had set up 30 years ago, so they gave her a really cool carriage house apartment, and um, her daughter was able to go to school, uh, you know, without a big uh, a big bill. Sure, sure. So that w- worked out really well for her, and, you know, like everything, the school has gone through some challenges and a change of head, and, you know, I, I think a lot of educators kind of like to change gears every 10 or 12 years or so. And um, it was time for her to move on. And this job in Steamboat came up and seemed like a great opportunity. And so she moved on. But she had moved in with me in up at my place in Campbell Hall there. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, and so we lived there together for about three or four years, but she was still enjoying her club membership. So we would go down there and, you know, uh, play tennis and sit around the pool and have a snack and, um, you know, walk around the lake and walk up Eagle Mountain. And I'd show her where I carved my initials in a tree. Shame on me. Sure. Uh, with, my, with my first, you know, 12 year old girlfriend or something. But, um, and, and just to, for- just to be clear, you were, uh, in your early teens at the time too. <laughs> Love it. We're gonna we're gonna come back uh, just after another word from the folks who make it possible. Sam's Meat Warehouse is a butcher with old time family values. Remember back in the day when people knew their butcher by name and visiting them was a social experience? They would talk to customers about how to cook a piece of meat to perfection. Sam's combines old world methods with modern techniques. Call your favorite butcher, Sam's, at 845-651-MEAT or visit the store right off 17A in Florida, New York for the highest quality products at unbeatable prices. I'm Maria Patrizio and I'm running for Orange County Family Court Judge. I'm a mom of two teenagers, an attorney who has helped over 5,000 people through the stressful family court process, and I'm the author of a book called Successfully Navigating Family Court in New York. I've literally written the book on family court, and my experience is what the families of Orange County need now more than ever. I'm Maria Patrizio, and I'm asking for your vote on Tuesday, November 3rd. Paid for by Friends of Maria Patrizio. Hi, this is Dr. David Leach, the superintendent of the Warwick Valley Central School District and host of Your Schools. Listen every Monday at 12 noon to learn what's happening in your schools right here on WTBQ, radio worth listening to. 
Hi, this is Mary Ulrich with Cornell Cooperative Extension, inviting you to join me and our local farmers on Farm Talk every Wednesday at 12 noon, where you can learn all about agriculture in our communities. That's Farm Talk, Wednesdays at 12 noon. WTBQ. And we're back with Tales and Trails. I'm Jay Westerveld, your host, and my guest today is my dear friend, Chris Bell who is talking about growing up in Tuxedo Park, New York, a very interesting and, and very unique gated enclave, just a little over a half hour from New York City and up under a half hour, according to what you're driving. And he's he's got fascinating stories about the place. And Chris, jumping back a little when you were talking about the architecture there uh, of the buildings in, in the park and that at, at a period where Americans were able to travel abroad more and were able to enjoy architecture especially of europe and they came back and decided i i want a home in that style or the, you know somebody wants rococo somebody else wants a you know straight mediterranean look um etc you you'd wind up with if it's fair to say sort of a patchwork of architectural styles within close proximity of each other almost like you'd find you know not to make a weird analogy but that sort of really colorful uh, diverse feeling you see at a zoo park or something where there's, you know, zebras in one enclosure and right next to it, maybe there are penguins or something. Um, do, did you get that feeling from this beautiful variety, this, you know, almost in your face mishmash of architectural styles? Uh, yeah, I, you, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I, I think one of the things that's really neat about it is this space and time where America, if you were doing well, you were doing well. And remember, there were a lot of immigrants flooding into the United States during that time, and they weren't doing very well uh, because you know, they got off a boat with a suitcase sure. and some money in a different language. So they were really, you know, they're, for lack of a better word, their back was against the wall. And, you know, every time a new uh, group of people comes in, they make it down the lower part of the totem pole. So uh, and if we, New York's always been a bit of a tough town, uh, so to get off a boat there in, you know, 1901 is probably a little scary. And, I can't but, imagine. So I, yeah, so I agree with you, um, and I think the neat thing about it is when you look at about uh, 19, uh, 1989 to 1912, that's when T Tuxedo Park was really built. And... Um, it is amazing that you could have a tutor right next to like a Norman chateau. Yeah, it's 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 always fascinated me. It's kind of like, you know, on one hand, it feels like it was built as a model to showcase different architectural <laughs> styles. And you know, you see that in, in a few areas. Uh right we're located in Warwick, New York here, of course. And here, you know, there's not there's not a true tutor. In, you know, in, in the village, there there are some buildings that are similar that come really close, but here there's a, a, a very reassuring consistency in architectural style. It, you know, sort of, it's a nice feeling and you, you feel calm. Um, other areas and, and certainly a, a, a lot more wealthy areas, sometimes you see the opposite and it can be, were they not so, you know, well insulated from one another by you know, wide lawns, it could be a little jarring. To me, Tuxedo Park almost feels jarring if I'm, say, on my motorcycle motoring around um, to see all those different styles. Yeah, I would agree. And I think one of the things that's interesting is, unlike Warwick, it is very 
hilly and pockety. So um, you almost don't quite notice it unless you're paying attention. Yes. Um, you know, of course, when you drive around the big lakes, you know, people have cleared trees away over the years and stuff. And you're looking at this humongous Mediterranean house going, whoa, yeah. that's a monster. But the reality is, is they're all spotted in the hills, almost kind of a, a European. I, I could kind of describe it like St. Paul de Vence a little bit. Sure. Uh, you know. Well said. Yeah, that's like, you know, it's kind of like a lot of the foothill communities in California, uh, up and down the coast, where these structures are there. You don't really notice them until you get into the driveway. And I guess that hilliness of Tuxedo Park sort of lent itself to that that funny juxtaposition of the different styles uh, so close to one another. And, it, you know, it brought in a, a lot of interesting people, including, you know, I remember a few interesting celebrities uh, there, certainly... Even up into the 90s, I know Cindy Lauper was living at the old Reeves place. I, I remember in the Good late, call, Jay. Right? With the big antennae? Yeah, Buzz Reeves. And I don't know, you know, I was there this summer um, coming up the thruway, and I did go into Tuxedo Park once or twice. But I, uh, I was wondering if Buzz's old radio antennas were still <laughs> up on that hill. <laughs> and you could see them from a long ways away. I mean, there, there was a point on the Appalachian Trail. <laughs> you can see one of them, you know, right from the AT. I remember fishing the lake, which was man. They, you know, some of the residents had the money and sort of the the grease to uh, stock it with almost whatever they wanted. And there was a, an amazing array of fish there. And you and I both love fishing. Uh, understatement yeah. of the of of our age. And I remember once being out there fishing uh, with Timmy. And we we were in a rowboat, a John boat, and um, there was a fella doing really well next to us, and he he yelled, you know, hello, and we started talking to him, and then I realized it was Robert Duvall, and I thought it was the craziest. <laughs> hey, man, that's you know the great. Well, it was probably before the great Santini. Um, yeah, but yeah, around that time, right. Robert Duvall actually lived uh, at the top of Tower Hill Road in a really neat sort of Dutch colonial style house. And I'm not sure how long he lived there. And, you know, another fellow that lived there and, and Jay, if you get an opportunity, walk into the tennis house at the tuxedo club and kind of go toward the men's locker room. You will see all of these old paintings of tennis players that were painted by Fred Gwynn. Who lived <laughs> what? In Herman Munster? Yeah. Herman Munster lived in tuxedo park, but I think only for about five or six years, but that was in that seventies uh, kind of era. That's cool. I mean, maybe because of yeah. the Munsters TV show, he sort of missed that Victorian mansion, that rundown mansion, and said, well, you know, I can move there. Yeah. Hey, Eddie. I'll, I'll take Lily. And oddly enough, check this one out. This is another interesting, you know, celebrity connection. There was a woman named Jackie Kornfeld who was great friends with uh, Charles Lindbergh. And I, I knew her as Mrs. Kornfeld. She was an older lady and she died in the 80s. But she had a big house on top of, I think, Circuit Road or something. But she was great friends with Lindbergh. And her nephew had a father named Charlie Adams. Uh, and no! Yes. Now, this guy, Bedford Davy, uh, his, he and his sister were actually, when Charlie Adams was doing the Adams Family illustrations for the New Yorker. Which were public, absolutely one of a kind. 
so Bedford is about five years older than me, and when his grandmother was sick, he moved into Tuxedo uh, and lived in a carriage house, and he was probably, you know, 30 years old, and, uh, but he was actually Pugsley of the Adams. <laughs> no way! <laughs> Oh my God, that is great. So when yeah. you say he was Pugsley, you mean he was the inspiration for Pugsley? Or? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, when when Charlie Adams did that strip, he was basically illustrating his family. Why would why would the guy who's the inspiration for Pugsley tell anyone, hey, I was the inspiration <laughs> for Pugsley? God. Well. Well, he had a bunch of illustrations, and actually, I think he rented an apartment at the club for a while. And uh, you know, I went over there to see him a couple times, and he he had a neat kind of car collection, and so we had a lot in common. And I uh, I would go over there, and there'd be these Charlie Adams uh, illustrations all over his walls, and I'm like, hey, you know, Pugsley looks a lot like you. It is me. <laughs> I can't imagine. What I love is there's a connection both to the Munsters and to the Adams family, because of course the Adams family, you know, after its popularization through the New Yorker cartoons, you know, we had a TV series when you and I were kids and there was almost, you know, as kids, which one, it actually predated both of us, but it was in reruns anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it was almost like a rivalry, sort of like, well, you know, do you like Marvel comics or do you like DC? Hey, who do you like better, the Munsters or the Adams Family? And the Adams Family was that incredibly dark, subtle humor, and the Munsters was just sort of that, you know, silly, funky, up in your face, uh, you yeah. know, joviality. Um, that is cool that there's a connection to both. I didn't know that. And the buildings and the state of some of those buildings at the time when your dad. Uh, first, you know, hit landfall there and looked around. I uh, had to sort of hearken to both of those series and both of those, uh, certainly the cartoon, uh, the Adams uh, cartoon series. So that, that is, is funny. And there's another little piece that's, that y your listeners might find kind of fascinating. Right up the hill uh, on Crow's Nest Road off East Lake Road, where my father lived, there was a place that Mrs. Bazoofy owned that was originally... Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, he, he was a bit of a scientist. And it ended up by, it, by the 70s being called the Villa Apartments. The lady who owned it, you know, kind of chopped up this mansion into apartments. And one of the apartments was a castle turret. Um, and it actually had an apartment in it. Well, what I found out later, uh, much later, is, is that um, when World War II was kind of really, when we really bombed the heck out of the Germans, uh, we grabbed all their scientists, and under the yes. guise of, you know, like Columbia University and uh, other New York universities, kind of hid them. And if you can imagine, empty Tuxedo Park in 1939 oh was gosh. a pretty good place to hide a bunch of scientists. Well, they hid them uh, in that tower where the atom bomb wow. was Chris, created. Can we talk more about this in another show? Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. You're fascinating. Excellent. Give me a call, brother. Right on.